All right, we're in Second uh, Samuel. We left off. Uh, we left off at verse, the end of verse 16 of chapter one. Um, we're we're going to pick up really in chapter two, as we continue. Um, a, a few years ago, Georgia, my wife's brother, um, got us into coffee roasting. For Christmas, he bought us a couple pounds of green raw coffee and kind of gave us some simple instructions and said, you'll never turn back, and he was right. Um, and and it's it's really kind of an interesting process, the, the way, you know, if you consider the way uh, coffee goes from, you know, seed all the way to cup. Um, you know, when you, you obviously you grow the, the shrub and then harvest the um the cherries, and then they're processed, and then in the, the, the process, kind of the fruit part of it is removed, and just the seed is, is then dried, and then it's packaged and sold and, you know, whatever. And then it comes to the to the roaster, you know, and then you, you take it and you basically roast it. It's high heat for um, a short period of time. It cracks uh, in that process of the of the bean cracking, you know, there's kind of like a, a development. It opens the door for a development to the to the inside, and then you take it off. Very, timing is essential. You take it off, and then it has to cool kind of quickly, and then it has to stand and it has to sit for like you know 18 hours, 24 hours. If you if you were to just take it right off the roaster and drink it or grind it, it would taste terrible. It just doesn't smell like coffee. It doesn't it's just not ready yet, you know. So it has to sit and just mellow out. There's a balance that has to come to it and it takes about 18 to 24 hours and then after that, then it's ready. Then you can grind it, you can uh brew it and and drink it, you know. And it's this kind of like this crazy thing, but you know, as I look at the the life of of David and it's not just coffee, I mean, a lot of things are like that, but uh, I look at the life of David, and I kind of see the similar thing. You know, that the, there's been um, he's grown. You know, he grew up, and then he's harvested. You know, God chooses him and calls him, and then and then there's now this um, drying out. You know, where he he kind of loses everything, and then he gets roasted. He goes into the fire, and there's this burning. You know, and uh, and this intense heat that's measured, and there's a time, and then there's a crack. You know, and he breaks, and then which is essential. It has to happen. If it doesn't break, then it doesn't develop. And then, and then there's a time of cooling, um, and then a time of just standing. And that's where we're at right now in, in his life. Is Saul is dead. The, the the heat is over. He's out of the crucible. The furnace time is is over. He's cracked. We're going to see that even this morning. He's a changed man. He's different than he was. Um, but now there's this there's almost this period of waiting. Now uh, there's going to be about seven years, and David is is going to be the king over one of the tribes. But it'll be seven and a half years before he becomes the king over the whole nation. And and it's really this period of transition right now, where a lot of the things that have been worked into David's life over this past season are are just kind of developing. You know, they're, they're, he's being prepared. Things are being prepared in the nation for him to step into the to the role that God has prepared him for. And it's just kind of this mellowing time right now. But there's a few chapters here of Samuel that the Holy Spirit has laid out for us of things that happened during that transition time 
that are uh, worthy of, of, of our attention and worthy of our learning from uh, and worthy of our observing that we might kind of just be familiar with God's ways even as he relates to us. Because there's times in our lives where there's just waiting. You know, it's not we're not suffering necessarily or we've gone through the crucible and, you know, there's, there's just a, a, a time, a season, and things are happening in it. And so that's where we're kind of at with David right now. Um, and during that time. So uh, verses 17 through the end of chapter 1, uh, if you read it, and I encourage that you do, we're not going to take the time to this morning. What you have is you have a lamentation uh, of David over the death of Saul. You know, now that Saul and Jonathan have died in the battle, uh, in the last chapter, um, David gets word of it, and the reaction of David is what's recorded in those verses. And, and the amazing and remarkable thing about it is that he has nothing in those verses to say uh, but positive and good and uh, um, just valiant words that he ascribes to both Saul and his son Jonathan and his family. I mean, he speaks of Saul as a warrior, about of the mighty, of uh, just of God's anointed. I mean, he just speaks such flowering words about him, uh, and this comes from David's heart. And and the amazing thing about it is that if you um, had no other scripture concerning King Saul other than what David writes here in these verses, you would think that Saul was just a giant of a man. You would have no idea that he was a tyrant, that he was just, uh, you know, so self-consumed and um, just all about himself and just really a bitter and prideful and oppressive uh, you know, wretch of a man, really, that he was, you would never know it based upon what David has to say uh, about Saul now at his death. And you know that David wasn't lying because it's in the Bible. You know, it's not like one of those eulogies where, you know, the, the, this guy was a drunk and he beat his wife and then she gets up and speaks this great stuff and you're like, yeah, she is just so full of it, you know. And, but it's not like that. You know, this is genuinely what's in David's heart. And there's something for us to consider in, in that um, when we think about it because every one of us has Saul's in our lives. We have people, uh, whether they're in our lives today, uh, that, that just we would, we would do anything to remove their presence and to remove their influence from, from being in our lives. Or maybe people in our past, a parent or uh, you know, a boss or somebody uh, in our past, a coach or a teacher, someone who just, just we, we would say that they shaped our life in a negative way, <laughs> you know, if we were to look back and we were to think about it. You know. But um, one of the things that we learn from David in this is that no matter, um, no matter how bad an experience with a human being or an individual might be in our past, there is, first of all, there's something good about that person that if we choose to, we could we could put our mind on that instead of on the thing about them that, that we hate or the thing that we despise or the thing that causes pain. And we always have that choice in life that when, when we're on any individual, every single human being is a mix of good and bad. And we can choose whether or not we want to put our attention uh, and our focus upon the good of an individual or the bad, even if the bad outweighs the good. 
And we see that the kind of man that David was is that he was a man who, who no matter what happened, he was not going to forget about the good. And he was going to put his focus and his emphasis on it, even if the bad caused him trauma and, and pain in his life. And that's an important thing for us to learn from David and to learn from Jesus. That that's, you know, D- David is called a man after God's own heart. And I'm thankful that when the Lord looks at me, his concentration isn't on the parts of me that, that I know are, are not right and that he knows aren't right, but that he sees what's right and what's good. The Bible says a bruised reed he won't break and a smoking flax he won't quench. Another thing to learn from this part of David's uh, um, character and the way that he, he really honors Saul in his death here is that, you know, I, I know people and we all know people from time to time. And in fact, it happens to every one of us is that we get burned or hurt by someone in church. You know, sometimes a spiritual leader or a pastor, uh, maybe someone that we spiritually trusted or learned from in the past, does something that really violates us. Sometimes there's a, an offense against us personally, uh, you know, a word that's said, or we, we maybe hear someone say something about us to someone else and they don't know that we heard about it, or they do something, there's a moral failure, or there's uh, some exposure and we see that they're, they're, um, there's a flaw, there was something in, in their life that they, they, didn't, they didn't deal with the right way and it came out and it, and it just was maybe um, just it stumbles you in some way. And there's a, there's a lot of, we all experience it because human beings aren't perfect. Churches aren't perfect. And what can happen is that we can, um, we can be uh, violated or stumbled by the offense of a, of a leader or a Christian, and it can cause us to turn our back on God. Or it can give us an excuse to say, well, this whole thing is just a sham. God's not real. The Christian life isn't real. The cross isn't real. You know, or they're all hypocrites and I'm just going to go do my own spiritual thing. And, 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 and if, if any Christian ever wants to do that, they can. The, the, it is, you do not have to look far to find a reason to do that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that if we allow it, God can use every one of those experiences, whether it's something that someone does to us that violates us, or whether it's something that someone does that puts a black eye on the Christian faith itself. Those things are an opportunity for us to grow if we allow them to be that. We can either use them as an excuse to compromise ourselves and to grow distant, or we can use those things as an opportunity to grow. And that's what David did. David didn't look at Saul as a reason to blaspheme God or to grow distant in the Christian life. But rather, he used Saul and God's, experience, God's exposure to David, uh, of Saul to David, as a way to grow, a means to grow. And God uses these things. And so uh, David is an incredible example of looking at a difficult person in the best way, in the godly way. We see that in the way that David uh, looked at Saul in his death. But now as we begin chapter 2, we see that David begins now um, his reign over the just the one tribe of Judah at this point. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says that it came to pass after this, that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? 
So he had been dwelling in Ziklag, in Gath, in the Philistine country, and now he asked, well, now that Saul is dead and there's no more um, worry that I'm going to lose my life, shall I now go back up into the, the area of Judah? Now, it's amazing that he prays about it. It's that he doesn't just assume, but he asks God. And the Lord answered, the Lord said unto him, go up. And David said, whither shall I go up or to what part of Judah? It's a big county, big uh, section of the land. Where, where do you want me to go? And the Lord said, go to Hebron. So David went up there. He and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail, Nabal's wife, the Carmelite. Nabal had died and David had taken her after his death. And his men that were with him did David bring up. So David has 600 men. The number hasn't grown during his time uh, in Ziklag. And it says now that every man with his household went up and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. So this is no small move. I mean, you imagine 600 plus uh, families moving up from one uh, region and then resettling in another. Um, this probably took a little bit of time. But it says that the men of Judah then came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. And so Jabesh-Gilead, one of the provinces there uh, in that region, and it was those men that came uh, and retrieved the body of Saul from the Philistine country, uh, gave it a proper burial, and did honor to it. And so David sent messengers unto now the men of Jabesh Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord that you have showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you or repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened and be ye valiant for your master Saul is dead and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now the reason why David sends this message to the men of, of Jabesh Gilead is not simply to announce that he has been anointed the king over Judah. Um, but the reason that he does it is really to, to set their minds at ease. Uh, it won't be long if they hadn't heard it already that they would find out that David has been made this king over Judah. And one of the things that was customary in that time in the ancient world is that when, um, when people showed allegiance to a particular kingdom, um, when a new king would come in, the first thing he would do is he would remove the influence or the allegiances of the, the outgoing kingdom. And so when these men would hear that David had become the king, having just buried Saul and given him the respect that he deserved, they would be nervous now that David would, would be seeking out some path of vengeance against them. And so David sends word to them uh, and, and basically thanks them for taking care of Saul's body and doing honor and saying that he's going to repay them, not as a political move, but just to set their mind at ease, as if to just say, listen, if there's ever been a time in Israel's history when, when political uh, allegiances were either rewarded or um, punished, those days are over and you have no reason to fear. Uh, I'm glad that you did this and um, I'll repay you when it's in my hand to be able to do it. Now, verse 8, but Abner, now Abner again, 
was the captain of Saul's host. And he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and over the Asherites and over Jezreel and over Ephraim and over Benjamin and over all Israel. So Abner now, who is basically the most powerful man in the wake of Saul's death remaining in Saul's administration, his general, he now takes the son of Saul, Ishbosheth, and makes him the king over the northern tribes in the place of Saul. And the reason why Abner does this is because Abner doesn't want to lose his control that he has and the power that he has over Israel at this time. And so he sets Ishbosheth more or less as a puppet king in the place of Saul so that he can maintain his place over Israel. We're going to find out soon that Ishbosheth is really nothing more than a puppet. He's a, he's a spineless man. He's got no power, no authority, no control. Abner is the one really who's calling the shots and running the show from here. So it says that um, he was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So the seven and a half years now wherein David is just the, the king over um, this whole whole thing. And, and you say, well, why, why in the world does David have to wait seven and a half years before he can become the king over the whole land? You know, this has got to be extremely excruciating for David at this point, knowing that he uh, is called to be the king, he's been anointed by one tribe, but now he's got seven and a half years and he's got to wait for the whole thing to take place. It isn't at this point, that David is unprepared. David is ready. God has prepared David. What's going on now is that the nation isn't ready for David. There, there's still things that have to happen in the nation to prepare them for David's rule over them. Sometimes the waiting periods in our life, when we're waiting for God's plan to, to come through or, or a promise that he's given to us, it isn't that we're not ready. Sometimes God is working in the peripheral things and preparing the stage and setting circumstances up for us. He doesn't waste anything. There's never needless waiting. There's always purpose behind everything that God does. And so seven years and six months of this standing time, this transition, uh, while, da while David waits. And so Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, now Joab is David's general. So he's Abner's counterpart. As Abner was to Saul, so Joab is to David. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon, or the waters, the sea, the lake that was in the land of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then there arose and there went over by number 12 of Benjamin, those are the sons of Saul, which pertain to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, 
and 12 of the servants of David. So basically what Abner proposes here, he says, hey, listen, let's not get into a drawn out battle where we you know, engage the whole armies and there's this whole civil conflict that goes on now to struggle for who's more powerful. Let's do this on a smaller scale. You get your 12 Navy SEALs from your, your men and I'll get 12 from my men and we'll just let them battle it through to the death. We'll play for keeps and we'll determine the outcome of this thing just based on 12 on 12 rather than causing all the armies to go through. And Joab goes, all right, I like that idea. Uh, we'll, we'll do it. My men are stronger than your men. Let's do it. And so it says in verse 16 that they caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side so they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. So basically, 12 men from each side die <laughs> in this contest to see which will be uh, the more elite. There's a stalemate here, a draw that comes out. It's never a good way to determine an outcome when Christians fight against Christians. What you have right now is you have the people of God fighting against the people of God in a power play. And any time that happens in a church, in a ministry, in a family, uh, between two churches, in a community, between two ministries, any time that happens, everybody loses. No one ever comes out on top. When Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, and the whole chapter is just the recorded prayer, the last words, essentially, of Jesus uh, to his Father for his people before he went to heaven. Five times in that chapter, in that prayer, Jesus' prayer for the church is that we would be one, is that there would be a love and that there would be a unity, that there would be a like-mindedness amongst God's people uh, in the world. John would write in 1 John, and he would say, or John would write the, recording the words of Christ, and he would say, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have towards one another. An essential component to the success and succession of the kingdom of God in the world is the unity of Christians as a testimony to the lost. And when you have infighting, battling amongst Christians, it's a blight upon the reputation of God and it murders the witness that God desires us to have in the world. The sole and singular motivation behind our service to God, in whatever capacity that is, is to be that God is glorified, that he is magnified, that he is seen, and that he is known. The opposite of God's glory as a motive for my servant or service is my glory. Selfish ambition is the word that the Bible uses, is that I'm in it in some way for me. There's something in it for me. I'm serving God for my purposes, whether or not I want to glorify myself or whether or not I want to enrich myself or whether or not there's some other thing that I want out of it, once self creeps into the equation, the glory of God has been subtly moved off the table and it no longer matters to me. Once self becomes my motivation for following, serving, anything that I do, now I've got to preserve it. 
And, it, and if that means that I've got to push someone else down, if I've got to slander another ministry, if I've got to assassinate someone else's character, I'm going to do that because I'm not concerned about God's glory and God's will. I'm only concerned about my own thing. One of the things that I've been praying for personally lately is that God would so tune my heart and change my heart that the motivation for what I do in his name would be nothing more than his glory. And that's a costly prayer to pray because of, of the things that that might cost, you know. But it's a safe place to be. And so we see here, we see Abner and jo Joab both have selfish ambition. It's going to come out insanely as we move through the study this morning. And the result of it is death to the people of God. No outcome, no good in it. It says that there was very sore battle that day. And Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. And there were three sons of Zeruiah there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. So Joab, David's general, has two brothers, Abishai and Asael, and it tells us that Asael was a was a fast runner. Just he he was just the Michael Johnson of his day. Uh, held the Olympic gold for for uh, running. No one could run as fast as him. And it says that Asael pursued after Abner. So. This young man who can run sets his eyes upon Saul's kingpin, the general of the army. This older man, seasoned warrior, but not able to run with the speed and swiftness of this young Asahel. And so he pursues Abner, and in going, he turned not to the right hand or to the left from following after Abner. And so along the way, there's many smaller fights that he could have chosen, but he just kind of decides, you know, I want to I want to go for the flag here. This is capture the flag. I want it all. I'm going to get Abner. So Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asael? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to thy right hand or to thy left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. So one of the reasons why Asael's gaining such ground on Abner is because he's unarmed. Doesn't have a shield, doesn't have a breastplate, doesn't have a helmet. None of that. He's just running after this guy and he's got nothing. And here's Abner running and Abner turns around, sees this young man and he says, listen, if you're going to do this, then at least arm yourself. You know, let's face off mano y mano. I don't want to have to one day look at your brother Joab, your brother Abishai, or, or stand, you know, uh, accountable for this thing and have not at least had a fair fight with you. You need to be armed in the whole thing. And so, um, verse 22, Abner said again to Asael, turn thee aside from following me. Why should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab, your brother? Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore, Abner, with the hinder end or the blunt end of the spear, smote him under the fifth rib that the spear came out behind him and he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asael fell and died, they stood still. They realized this is a big deal. You know, this is one of Joab's brothers with the blunt end of the spear 
right through him. I mean, this was. I mean, you're you're talking about Abner here. The guy is no slouch. He knows how to fight, uh, and and this isn't even hard for him. He knows this is going to happen. He's being pursued. He gives warning, and down goes uh, Asael in, in this whole thing. So what do you have here? What you have is you have a young man who has a lot of energy and a lot of zeal and he has a lot of skill he's gifted and he knows he's on the winning team and he decides he's going to take on something that's way outside of his league because he has this young zealous confidence that is not tempered with wisdom and understanding and sobriety this happens all the time in spiritual things even to the present day not necessarily in battle you know but in the spiritual realm in, in, that we live in there's something that happens when a person is born again the holy spirit comes into our lives he turns the lights on and especially this happens in younger men is that there's this zeal and this youthful energy that gets anointed and filled with the holy ghost and because there's gifts and because there's energy and because there's zeal and because there's a knowledge that we're on the winning team, we can unadvisedly get ourselves involved in things that are beyond our capability or beyond our level or beyond our calling and what God has given us and called us to do. And that's a dangerous place to be because although we're on the winning team, and although we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the spiritual realm is very real. And there are forces of darkness at play that you and I have, have no comprehension of and understanding of in the early days of our Christian walk. There are things and, and difficulties and trials and challenges uh, that, are, that are difficult you know, that we have to face and that we have to fight and that the energy of youth and the zeal of youth aren't equipped for and that maybe God hasn't, battles that God hasn't called us into. And it's important that we understand the, the severity of, of the stakes of things and that we operate according to our calling and not according to our zeal. You know, we think that we can go and be the next Billy Graham or, you know, the next whatever, apostle or something like that. Maybe God hasn't called us to be that. And so it's important that we wait upon the Lord and that we allow his calling and election to be made sure in our lives that we're in a place of safety and we understand uh, the, the, the um, you know, uh, the, the, weight, the, uh, the stakes of the battle. This, this, this is not an uncommon thing that happens in the Bible where a young man wants to run and it's not time yet. You know, it'll happen later on in David's life. There's going to be a young man named Cushai. And uh, when, when Absalom, one of David's sons, gets uh, killed in the battle and Joab has to send a messenger to tell David what happened in the battle, it's very sensitive information that needs to be given to the king. And the young man Cushai wants to run. He's just got the, the youthful energy and wants to go, but he doesn't understand really what's taking place. And, and so he asks Joab, and he says, can I go? I want to run. I want to go bring this message. And Joab says, it's not for you. You know, this, this is sensitive information. I need to send someone else. And Cushai says, yes, but I can run. You need a messenger, and I can run. And, and Joab just doesn't want to deal with him. So Joab says, you know what? Go. Just run. If you want to run, run. But then the older guy, 
who understands a thing or two comes and Joab says, all right, listen, this is what you need to tell the king. You need to tell him this and you need to tell him this and you need to say it in this way and it's very important that you portray the message in the right way to the king because it's his son. And so the older man goes and doesn't have the energy, doesn't have the zeal, doesn't have the gifts, doesn't have the talent, but he has the calling. And he goes and Cushai, David's watchers look out, someone's coming. And here comes Cushai, the young man. It's Cushai. And David says, he's a good man. And Cushai comes. And David says, what's the message? He goes, all right. Wow. He goes, well, there was a battle. And, and there, there was a lot of action. And people died. And uh, it was awesome. And David goes, okay, but... You know, just sit here for a minute. And the watcher says, here comes someone else. Here comes this plodding old man, you know, and it's the running of the other guy, you know, and he brings him in. And the man sits David down and he says, David, I got to tell you something. And David says, how went the matter? How is the young man Absalom? What's going on? And the man looked at David and he said, David, would to God that all of your enemies were as that young man is. Very few words, very softly spoken got the message across in a sensitive way wherein David was gently given a message that would greatly affect his emotions and his future. It was essential that the message be given the right way in order for things to go the way they were supposed to go. And it wasn't in the young man who was ready to run to be able to give it in the way it needed to be given. And so it's important that we understand our calling and not just our zeal and our desire and our gifts. And that takes time. And so Asael, zealous, gifted, ambitious, not called, gets killed. Important lesson. Joab, verse 24, also in Abishai pursued after Abner, and the sun went down when they were come to the hill of Amma that lies before Gaia by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. And the children of Benjamin gathered themselves together after Abner and became one troop and stood on the top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Knowest thou not that it will be bitterness in the latter end? How long shall it be then ere you bid the people return from following their brethren? And Joab said, As God liveth, unless you had spoken, surely then in the morning the people had gone up, every one from following his brother. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and pursued after Israel no more, neither fought they any more. So most likely Joab does not know at this point that his brother Asael has been slain by Abner. Abner calls for a ceasefire. He says, listen, how long are we going to continue to just kill each other? Uh, you know, we, we, we can't do this anymore. And Joab looks back at him and says, listen, it's a good thing you said something because we're not low on energy. Would have, we would have fought all night. But, but since you, you say, uncle, uh, we'll stop essentially. And so Abner and his men walked all that night through the plain and passed over Jordan and went through Bithron and they came to Mahanaim. And Joab returned from following Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there lacked of David's servants, 19 men and Asael. So probably the 12 men uh, that, that, that fell at the pools of Gibeon, uh, then Asael, and just six more um, beyond that. 
died of the servants of David. But it says the servants of David had smitten of Benjamin and of Abner's men so that 360 men died. And so they took up Asael and they buried him in the sepulcher of his father, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night and they came to Hebron at the break of day. Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David waxed stronger and stronger and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. So part of what was taking place during the seven and a half years of waiting uh, while the kingdom is being unified under David is that Saul's strength is diminishing. The, 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 the remnants of his administration, his military, his might, his influence, uh, those things are diminishing while David's is growing stronger and stronger. And it says that unto David, and this is what else is going on during those seven and a half years of waiting. Beware of seven and a half years of waiting, men. It says, born unto David, uh, or it says, unto David uh, were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. And his second was Chiliab of Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Telmai, the king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, Great name, if you're looking for a girl name. And the fifth, Shephathiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim, by Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. So David, uh, at this point, taking more wives and now beginning to build uh, a dynasty of his own, a family. And it came to pass that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. Now, um, this was a big problem, and it would become an even bigger problem for David as his time would advance. Um, the Bible says to, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, specifically to the king, Moses wrote to them by God, and he said, and when the day comes that you have set a king over the land, this is the commandment for a king, that he is not... To multiply to himself horses, gold and silver, or wives. That as is my statute, God's statute from the very beginning was that a, a man, singular, shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, plural. Sorry. No, not plural. Singular. David violated that, made it plural. But he shall be joined to his wife, singular, and they too. There's no uncertain terms in what God established and ordained marriage to be. A man, a woman, they too <laughs> shall be joined until death. That is what God defined marriage to be. And that is God's principle concerning marriage from Genesis to Revelation. Now, did men in the Bible take more than one wife? Yes. Did God report that they took more than one wife? Yes. Did God approve of the fact that they took more than one wife or condone it? No. God let it be known from the beginning what his will is. Jesus affirmed that in the Gospels by saying to those that questioned him concerning marriage, he said, have you not read what God said in the beginning, that a man shall leave his father and mother? He quoted the same verses and affirmed that that's what marriage is. 
Marriage is one man, one woman for life. Now, the king's thought, well, that applies to the common person that doesn't have the capacity, the ability, or the responsibility, or the needs, or whatever that we have, but it doesn't necessarily apply to us. Men, take heed and be warned in this. There are times, listen carefully, this is important. There are times when we violate the commands of God that he will discipline, he will chastise, and he will immediately bring judgment upon our decision and bring us back into the path of understanding. There are times that God does that. There are other times where we violate the will of God, the word of God, the ways of God, and he lets us get away with it. He does not punish. He does not discipline. He does not bring roadblock. He leaves us to what we know of what he said and gives us the choice of whether or not we're just going to obey it and walk in it or if we're going to forge ahead with what we think might be best. And what he then does is he allows the consequences of those decisions to come into our lives. I wish that every time I was doing something that God didn't approve of, he immediately did something to put a stop to it. But he doesn't do that. Sometimes he allows us to make a decision and he just says, okay, I'm not going to take my salvation from you. I'm not going to take my love from you. I'm not going to stop blessing your life or using your life. I'm not going to change my plans for you and for your future. But you are going to reap the byproduct and the outcomes of what you've sown and what you're sowing into your life right now. David multiplies wives and there's seemingly no consequence. But the Bible says, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Now, what's David going to reap as an outcome of this lady problem that he can't seem to get under control? First of all, this is the foundation that will ultimately lead to his sin with Bathsheba by the time we get to chapter 12. It will be the ultimate low point and the ruin for David when he comes to that point. What David is doing blindly right now, thinking that it's no big deal, is going to ruin the second 20 years of his 40-year reign. It's going to ruin it. It's going to take 20 years of David's twilight, his golden years of his life that should have been the greatest blessing when he can look back and enjoy the fruit of what his life was and it will be ruin instead. Nothing but misery. His family life is going to be decimated and destroyed. One of his sons is going to become a rapist. Two of his sons are going to be killed as a direct result of that and of this. And his family is just going to be in torment because of all of what happens, because of what David is doing here that he thinks is no big deal. Well, I'm the king. I can do this. I can get away with this. There's even scripture that I can quote where people have done this in the past. Not only that, but his son Solomon, who's going to take over after him and reign for 40 years after David, Solomon is going to take David's example, whereas David had seven or eight wives, 
Solomon is going to have a thousand wives. That's that's a problem. You've got a problem, you know. And someone needed to tell him, like you've got a problem. You need to see someone, you know, about that. And those wives are ultimately going to ruin Solomon, turn his heart away from God late in his life, and listen, cause the division of the kingdom to where Israel's future from that point on will be two nations instead of one nation. And you know where you can trace it back to? Right here. Right here. This point, these seven and a half years, the foundation of David's fruitful years, when he decided that part of God's word doesn't apply to me. That command, that principle, other people might struggle with that, I'll be able to manage it. I can navigate through it. The effects were far-reaching, and they always are. And sometimes God leaves it with us to say, you know what, I'm going to just obey God in this. I don't even maybe understand why he says not to do this or to do this, but I'm going to just obey him in it. You'll be glad that you did, and you'll regret if you don't. So critical, so important. Foundation is everything. Foundation is everything. Every tragedy and turmoil that you experience in your life, you can trace back to a moment. Eight, 10, 15 years before that tragedy comes. And you, in your mind, you already know, you can say, this is because of this decision. Or this path. Or this choice. Very, very dangerous thing David is messing with here. It's going to come back uh, to bite him. Um, we'll stop there today just because uh, um, otherwise we'll end up going way too long. Um, what, what's going to happen next, you can read ahead, is we're going to see Abner and the conditions that cause Abner to defect to David and just the conditions that bring David uh, into the fullness of his reign. In our next study next week, what we'll do is we'll, um, we'll kind of fly over the rest of this chapter and just pull out the highlights and then we'll move into, we'll fly over chapter 4 too and we'll just move mostly right into chapter 5 where David really becomes the king and uh, kind of look now at his reign and, and those things. Um, but great, great things, important lessons. God laid them in the scripture for us on purpose. It's not a waste of time. Um, so we'll continue there. But I believe that the Lord has uh, spoken to us this morning. Take heed, men. Take heed to the words of God. He does not waste words. He knows what he's talking about. And his ways, his desires for us are for peace, not for evil. He's not trying to restrict. He's not trying to restrain. He sees what we can't. He's way wiser than we are. And thus he calls us into, into his life.